0: I have a special guest on the show today. I am energized to introduce you to Dr. Susan Bernstein. I have the pleasure of connecting with Dr. Susan on a weekly basis in our Elevate Squad. I am so grateful for this community of like-minded women who want to achieve and live fulfilling lives. As I got to know Dr. Susan and her work, I looked at her and said, that is me. What does it mean to be an anxious achiever? And I had to learn more. So of course, I invited her on the show today to showcase her work, describe her background, and tell us more about being an anxious achiever. And I want to formally introduce Dr. Susan because she has supported high achievers who are anxious or tough on themselves people like me, since 2001. She encourages high achievers to dial down stress and pressure and dial up their powerful presence, career satisfaction, and authentic success. She spent over 25 years working corporate and has both an MBA and a PhD in psychology. Dr. Susan has been featured in publications such as Fast Company, Thrive Global, and Psychology Today. And now she is being featured on the Elite Achievement Podcast. Welcome, Dr. Susan.
1: Kristen, it is such a joy to be with you. I'm super energized just hearing that. Wow. <laughs> what an absolute joy. Thank you for having me.
0: You've done so many fabulous things.
1: So it's <laughs>
0: fun to introduce you. And I want to start by understanding more about what it means to be your sensational self. What does it mean to be your sensational self?
1: Yeah, that's a big piece of the message that I'm bringing to people is to be your sensational self. And it's a double entendre, meaning that sensational has two different meanings, right? Sensational is both, wow, amazing, fantastic. And sensational is also, play on sensation, which we feel in the body. So I work with people to be their most sensational selves, the best version of themselves, the fullest potential of themselves, especially in their work, which is a huge place, a huge arena for us to show up and be our best selves, our fullest potential. And P.S., when people play in that arena and become the most sensational self, that shows up in other areas of their lives. It shows up in their personal relationships. It shows up in their health. I'm not just working with people's minds. I'm helping them with their bodies and the sensations that we feel. And our sensations are information. Sensations are communication from the body. So for example, if you're really angry, probably gonna get hot, probably gonna get sweaty. Your face might turn red. But if you're sad, you're probably gonna feel heavy. And your stomach might feel full and your shoulders might slump. Those are all communications and how we form ourselves informs our mood. So if we sit up straighter, you know, our mothers were all right. (laughs) We sit up straighter. (laughs) We feel more powerful. Some people may know Amy Cuddy's work. Psychologist teaches at Harvard, wrote a book called Presence about the power pose where we stand with our hands on our hips. And look like superwoman or wonder woman. And that using that for two minutes can make us feel empowered. So our bodies contain all this sensational wisdom for us, but most of us are trained out of it and we can get trained out of it very early. Like you tell your mom, you're hungry you already ate. I'm really hungry. Did you already ate? And so you're like, maybe I'm not hungry or it's cold outside or the temperature looks like it should be cold outside. You go out as a little kid to run out, and your mom's like, Go put a sweater on. You're like, I'm not cold. Go put a sweater on. It's cold. And you've learned to distrust the information in your body. So, there are lots of ways that that unintentionally happens. And we also, especially recording this during the pandemic, we've learned to be neck up, right? We see each other's faces in little zoom rectangles. So, we don't think a lot about our bodies. And I'm not talking about our body in like, take your body and go put it on the treadmill or on your bicycle. I'm talking about the felt, experienced self, moment to moment. And that can be in our breath, that can be in our movement, that can be in our eye gaze. It can be in a gesture that we make and actually feeling and learning from that and being able to make what I call sensational shifts, micro shifts that can change our perspective, that can change our mind, that can change how we show up in the world, but most particularly how we feel about ourselves. I'm someone
0: who has a very active mind. I'm sure as you've gotten to know me, this does not surprise you. I spend a lot of time in the future thinking and the past thinking, and I'm always like thinking, thinking, thinking. How can we learn? To slow down the mind so we can tune into the body and the sensations that the body is telling us?
1: Yeah, I love that question because the mind knows how to be three places. Our mind knows how to be in the past and reliving, like ruminating over, I should have said this in that meeting. Why did I do that? What a dork I am. I wish I could redo that, right? Whereas we can spend precious time in the past or we can be. Planning and anxious about the future. And I'm like, how is that going to work? And what if this doesn't work right? And um, am I going to go to that meeting? Do I not go to that meeting? All that worry and dread about the future. But the place where we have the most power in our mind is the present. And if we want to get present, the easiest way I know to do that is to pay attention to the sensations in our body. So I'm sitting right now. You can pay attention to how it feels to make contact in my case with a chair and feel the pressure of my butt against the chair and where on my back do I contact the chair and where don't I, right? Just noticing what the experience is to live in my body. One that I share with clients sometimes is it's very different to look at your hand Than to take one finger or your other hand and touch the other hand. And what if you actually do that with attention? What does it feel like for my one hand to touch the other hand? Where is each hand warm and cool? What's the texture of my hand like? If I turn my hands over and over each other, what do I notice? What's pleasurable about touching my hands together? What emotions come up when I do that? And I'll tell people. When you're taking a shower, instead of just lathering on the soap mindlessly and just trying to get the heck out of there, do that slowly and savor the feeling of your own touch on yourself. That's a great example of paying attention to sensation. So we can drop in any moment. We can drop in and pay attention to our breath. We can pay attention to tension in the body. And instead of making it something bad, just be like, oh, I just noticed. As unjudgmentally as possible. It's data. And it is a communication back from the body. And most of us don't know how, don't pay that much attention to it. But it's also how we know, if we pay attention, that we're hungry. Instead of eating on a schedule and be like, I have to, it's 12 o'clock, better put some food in my mouth. Like, oh, that's that feeling of hunger. It's a certain grumble in my belly, a certain emptiness. Or I'm thirsty and there's a certain feeling that you'll feel at the back of your throat or in your mouth feeling dry. That's all sensation communicating with us. And the more we do it, the more we take the time to pay attention to sensation, the less we're actually able to do rumination. Why? Because the parts of the brain that do those two things, sensation and rumination, are dominant for those. Work as opposite levers to each other. So if you find yourself ruminating, a bunch of anxious, overthinking, stop. Put a hand on your heart, both your hands on your heart. And like, I'm just gonna slow down and feel the rise and fall of my chest. And just put a timer on and do that for a minute. Put your attention there and you'll find, amazingly, it's an experiment you can try for yourself. But in general, maybe it takes two minutes, maybe it takes three, but it doesn't take an hour of doing that of just being with yourself and you can do it anytime. As you were describing
0: the feeling of your hand, I was doing the exercise along with you and I felt calmer, Mm. which I find fascinating because as I mentioned, my mind is constantly going and I want to talk about being an anxious achiever next, but it was a really helpful way to calm down and to slow down. And then I'm listening to you and. I take these super fast showers. It's like, I got to go. I got to get to my next thing, get in, get out. I'm like, oh, and the hungry. That literally happened last night with our daughter and we had dinner and she didn't eat a ton of dinner. And then an hour later, she's asking for snacks and I'm trying to figure out, is it just because snacks taste better than dinner, which could be, but I think that you're raising some really incredible points that I want to reflect on as a mama. My natural instinct is, well, you already ate dinner, but I never thought that that could be teaching her to avoid paying attention to her body. So I appreciate you bringing that up.
1: Yeah. You could just ask her, tell me about hungry. Where do you feel the hungry? And if she's like, it's just here in my mouth, you know, like I want a taste dance going on in my mouth and say, okay, let's save that taste dance for, you know, save it up so you can savor it even more when it comes. And like, just let yourself notice your own hunger. You helping her be aware of hunger will be a gift to give her that pays off the rest of her life.
0: I'm sure we could have an entire conversation around that and body image and all the ways that we unintentionally inflict so much of those mindsets and thoughts to our kids. But let's talk about being an anxious achiever. Because when I heard that you did this work, first of all, I'd never heard of the words anxious achiever. And as you were describing this work, I'm like, oh, Dr. Susan, that is me. So let's start. How do you define an anxious achiever? What is an anxious achiever?
1: I want to say, Kristen, I feel you. And I'm an anxious achiever in recovery. (laughs) I think I will be in recovery for maybe the rest of my life. And that's fine with me because it's about noticing my own pattern. So an anxious achiever is somebody who achieves, or you think of it as anxious achievement, someone who achieves, but underneath all their accolades, all the things that they're getting underneath, there's an underlying feeling of I'm somehow not enough. I'm not measuring up. I'm not good enough. So it's very related and you know, things that are in the related world are imposter complex or imposter syndrome, overthinking, feeling insufficient. Some of that is very cultural. So I want to say that for sure. Some of the messages that we get. But an anxious achiever underneath will constantly put in more effort, try to do more because they're filling a deficit that probably got patterned in very early as a child where somehow they took what was going on in their family to mean I'm not enough. It's not usually intentional although there are people who likely have it because of traumas in their family. Big capital T trauma big time but usually it's things of benign neglect meaning it's neglect that wasn't intentional. So like for me and my family a good example of that was When I was a little kid, I loved telling stories and making up little plays. And I remember a time when I was five or six and my parents were having other adults over and I'm like, can I do a little play? And they're like, yeah, sure. So I take like five minutes and everybody claps at the end. And then I'm like, I want to do another. And they're like, go to your room. That's like enough. Like I was too, I was too much, right? So sometimes it's you're too much or not enough or somehow not measuring up. And there's a pattern that's usually unconscious of trying to fill that. And usually anxious achievers try to fill it with more effort, more work, boring themselves in more. And it becomes really unfortunate, especially stepping into leadership. The leader can't do everything for everybody. The leader has to learn to delegate, has to learn to pass off the baton to somebody else. And so it can be very detrimental to leadership if this is a pattern that's running somebody for the long term.
0: This is helping me make so much sense around some of my own goals I've achieved or thoughts that I have. I remember back when I ran my very first marathon, so 26.2 miles in Chicago, and I finished the race and it was a really hot day. It was an unusually warm day in Chicago. It was so warm, in fact, that the race organizers stopped the race for people who weren't at a certain point and started to bust them back to the start. And for others who were past that point, they wanted you to walk and slow down. And I finished that race and I somehow felt like I didn't do a good enough job. So I signed up for another and another and another. And 408 was my best marathon PR. I never broke the four-hour mark. And I still feel almost like an imposter, like I was never really a marathon runner. And then I think, Dr. Susan, about my own business and how my first year in business, I was able to launch quite successfully and generate over a quarter of a million dollars in revenue... And it doesn't feel like it's a big deal or it doesn't feel like it's enough. And that might mean that I definitely have some of these underlying anxious achiever patterns in my own life. If you identify as an anxious achiever, so if I'm not alone listening to you saying, yeah, that's me, that's me. What are some things we can do to feel more fulfilled in both our business and our lives?
1: That's such a beautiful question. So I'll explain it in terms of moving away from and moving toward. What do I mean by moving away from and moving toward? Anxious achievers are moving away from the pain. They don't want to feel like they're not enough. They're insufficient. They're not doing a good job. That's not very inspiring to move away from that. So it's instead to, what are you moving toward? What is it that fills you and thrills you that you want to point things to. In other words, what's the joy? Or another way to say that is what's the fire? What's the fire within you that gives you positive energy? So it might be, I want to feel so healthy in my body as opposed to, I got to get this number down below 408. I want to feel the exhilaration of crossing the finish line. I ask people constantly, what's your fire? And another way to say that that people are pretty familiar with these days because of Simon Sinek's work, is what's your why? And you want your why to, or that that fire to be something that inspires you, that illuminates for you in a way that feels really good. What is it that you want to do in your business? I mean, it's touch these many people and have people, instead of procrastinating, fulfilling on their goals. I want to touch... 100,000 people this year, or maybe it's a bigger number, but it's the, what are they doing if you were going to use that for your own fire, your own why? What are they able to do that makes me so happy for them? It gives me joy. Not out of a sense of obligation, but out of a sense of that feels so good. So that's about moving toward instead of moving away from, I'll be a failure if I don't hit the 408 mark or if I don't hit cross beyond the 250 mark?
0: Maybe I'm working towards this and I'm on a a journey of growth and development this year because last year it was all about that revenue number and I had so much self-worth tied up in that revenue number. And like most anxious achievers, I planned my goals this year and raised the number. I'm like, I'm going after more, let's go get it. And then I realized, Dr. Susan, at the end of the first quarter when I was conducting my quarterly review, I didn't feel that fire. I didn't feel that same level of connection. And I changed the goal, dun dun dun. So I know as a goal achievement coach, people are like, What? She changed the goal. (laughs) But I recognize my most meaningful goal is truly launching the Elite Achievement Goal Setting Series that just concluded last month in June. And so I'm working towards this and learning to listen more towards the joy and what fulfills me versus hitting that number. And I'm wondering, Do we learn some of this in our corporate careers? So some of the ways that we work in corporate, do we start to bring those into our
1: own businesses? (laughs) Yeah, absolutely. There are things that patterns that I have to undo from my corporate doing. Corporations are cultures, right? Just the way that countries have cultures and families have cultures and what we learn to do. So it took me on a personal level, I love to write writing, you know, is fire for me, but I don't love to write memos. (laughs) For sure. (laughs) I learned to write memos and it took me, oh, a good five years after my corporate career to start to write in a flowery, more elaborate way that all the words didn't end in T-I-O-N, like function and election and like words that were... So nouny, and it's <laughs> not a good, it's not a real word either. But noun based, and had a sense that wasn't as personal about it. So learning to write personally, because I had been a management consultant, and I wasn't writing about myself. I was writing pieces. That I was writing about were corporate strategies, and CEOs do not want to hear my personal journey as a way to know how should we expand our market. I wonder if they do, would that change their results? It <laughs> very well could. I mean, we definitely, as human beings, are inspired by story. However, strategy consultants, like with your whole setting, have to look at financials and look at numbers. I needed a balance for me personally that was much more personal than just the numbers.
0: Makes so much sense. What advice do you have for someone who might be in that corporate setting and feeling like they want to show up as more of their authentic self or listen to their own intuition, lean into what it is that they need? What advice do you have to help them do that?
1: I have a practice that I do with my clients that I'll share and you want to do this in a safe space and not in some big meeting with your CEO the first time you do it. (laughs) (laughs) That's dangerous. So, like warning, do not try this at work. (laughs) Try this at home first. That's the usual the opposite advice. But try this at home or try this with a friend, and that is to blurt. What do I mean by blurt? Blurting is on purpose. Have your friend ask you the question, what is it you really want to say? And then have them ask that to you. Just listen and say thank you, with no, oh my God, that's amazing, or that's stupid. Why would you say that? Just letting you get to what do you really want to give voice to in the world? So I did this with a friend recently and she's like, well, she's blurted out what we're doing as a process here at work is really stupid. Thank you. And I let her listen again. You know, it's just ludicrous for us to expect people in her case, it had to do with coming back to the office and we're talking pandemic time. Like, that's ludicrous. Okay. And I let her keep talking and blurting and blurting. And what she really got to is, it's unfair to demand this right now when people need time to adjust. And she was able to take that blurt, when we worked together to, for her to send a message to her executive team and say, I know you're asking us to do this, but there's some experiences of people that I think you're not taking into account here. And I haven't heard yet what's happened with that blurt, but her being able to just say and show up fully is such an important thing for us to know as leaders what we want to say authentically. I mean, there's a lot more I could say about authenticity, but this is, I think, authentically finding your voice and knowing what you want to say is essential as a leader. I also think feeling like your personality is okay to show up that you're not, for example, too much or not enough. It's like being okay with who you are right now. And you may have aspirations of, I want to be more of this or less of that. How can you just make peace with where you are now? Because that's the springboard for everything else. And if you don't like that foundation that you're jumping off of, you don't have anything to jump off of. It's not there and you don't honor it. So one of the practices that I do with my clients is a simple one, but it's just like, Honoring yourself with two hands on your chest and close your eyes like, I'm fine, just the way I am. You know, I'm fine, just the way I am. And trusting that, learning, building that trust and watching for people who you see who are doing things their own way. And the one of the things that I love bringing to that is the idea that if you do something that people are kind of weird, is learning to just say, I'm quirky instead of doing something wrong or something bad, I'm quirky. We all have quirks. That's what makes us interesting. Dr.
0: Susan, there have been times in my career where I have been given the too much feedback. I can remember I've been told I'm too positive. I'm too ambitious. And so I think if you hear that over and over, it starts to create doubt and minimizes confidence. So if you're someone who have been told you're too much or you're too
1: this, how can you start to grow your confidence? That is a really good question. And I think you have to be careful of the toxic twos, (laughs) that it is toxic to keep hearing you're too much of or the toxic nots, you're not enough of. When somebody says you're too much or you're not enough, what they ought to add that they're not adding is for me in this moment. Like I can't handle how much you're coming across this way. It's about their own ability to receive the moment with you. It's so toxic to say that. They're not also using specificity, which I'm sure is a goal setting person. Like you have to get specific about things. You just be like, I want to lose weight. Okay. That's not, that's not specific. Or I want to make more money. That's not specific. It doesn't help us to have a vision. So. If somebody says to you, you're too much, you can say, So what is it you are looking for? Right? Then we manage expectations because what the person isn't conveying in that, they're conveying something that comes across negatively. And what they're not doing that you need is what's the expectation? And why is that expectation matter? If they're expecting that you will never raise your voice in a meeting, like, wow, do you mean you don't want to hear me at all? A lot of people who get you're too much is the intensity of them. Everybody's worried like, oh, somehow this is going to come off wrong. And so what you need to adjust that is, okay, let me understand how that lands for somebody. What is it underneath that that they're needing? Like in this moment, you just barreled on through. okay. What do you need? Oh, if you had slowed down, people would, could get on board with you. Oh, that's the positive. So you've got to ask them, what's the good thing you're looking for in this change in behavior that you're asking? So it's asking the specificity of what does that too much mean? What are you looking for? And What's the upside that you're trying to achieve? So that you also have some more flexibility in how you show up, not just stop doing that thing. That's really interesting
0: because I like to believe that a lot of times leaders are giving feedback and it's genuinely coming from a good place. Mm-hmm. However, sometimes the feedback shows up in those one sentence, too much comments, and there's not a lot of clarity and you're not really sure where to move on from that. And then I know in my case, that leads to a lot of ruminating and a lot of self doubt. And so I really appreciate how you offer some questions. For those of us that are getting that feedback to take some control and explore what is it you are looking for? And we can learn and grow from that moment.
1: I would also add to that, that when you get that kind of feedback, like you're too much or you're not enough of something, ask yourself, what are you making that mean? What else are you making it mean about yourself? So that you stop. And I encourage people to actually write it down. I'm making this mean that I'm a bad person. I'm making this mean that I'll never... Achieve this thing, whatever it is, so that you can actually sit and look at that. And if it's disturbing to you, then that might be something to say I need to go talk to a friend or I need to talk to a therapist or a coach to work on my own interpretation, my own framework about what this is telling me that somehow bringing me down more than I need to be brought. And there are also managers who act in a way that's toxic to others. Sometimes that we're taking the pressure of somebody who hasn't done their own personal growth work. And you know, that can be hard if once in a while somebody says something off the cuff, leave it. But if it's a repeating pattern, that's worth looking at, hey, what's going on in this relationship? What are
0: some additional roadblocks that can hold leaders back from excelling in their leadership career?
1: One is leaders thinking that they need to do their work alone. Like, I've just got to get this. I'm the leader, so I'm in charge, so I can't go ask for advice. I mean, it's one of the reasons I'm in Elevate. I don't think that I have all the answers. And that's what I love about our group and other groups that I belong to is having a way not to do it all alone. And I'd say on the flip side of something, you know, more negative that leaders do is if they are anxious achievers, being careful about not spreading the anxious contagion right? So that doesn't always show up like, I'm really, really nervous. Okay, let's all get nervous together. It can sometimes show up as, can you hurry up and get that done? I have a big rush. And um, it can show up as you can come across angry and people can be like, that person's really hard to deal with when we're under pressure. So it's in learning to tame down your anxiety. We don't want anxiety or anger being contagious. It's great when we have contagious happiness, joy and things like that. But anger and anxiety contagiously in an organization can really be detrimental.
0: This conversation has been hugely impactful for me thinking through some of the ways that I'm leading as a parent Thinking through some of the decisions I'm making in my own business and the goals that I'm setting for myself. And then ultimately, recognizing how we can spend so much time in the future or in the past and then in the present. And you offered so many great ideas to become more present and more aware of the sensations in our bodies. So, if our
1: listeners want to learn more about you and your work, where can they find you? My website is drsusanbernstein.com and Bernstein is spelled B-E-R-N-S-T-E-I-N. I I hang out a lot on LinkedIn. That's probably the platform I'm on the most. So go look up Dr. Susan Bernstein on LinkedIn. And please let me know if you want to connect, say that you listen to the podcast. That's a great way for us to get connected. I'm starting to hang out on Instagram, but that's new for me (laughs) under Dr. S. Bernstein. So you can look for me there and I'm going to be launching a podcast soon. So stay tuned. Ooh,
0: can you give us a preview? Tell us anything about the podcast.
1: Yeah, so the podcast is, i pretty dang sure, going to be called Be Your Sensational Self. And again, it's that play on sensations, your sensational best, as well as how to listen to your sensations. And I'll be sharing ideas on how to be sensational and practices that you can adopt if you like the things that we did here, like with your hands or putting a hand on heart, breathing techniques that you can use. And am was just such a big fan. What changed my life and changed me from being super, super anxious was learning in my PhD program of all places to pay attention to my body. Not only was it academic in the mind-body world, but it was also experiential. And I got to do things like we would try different breathing patterns and notice how we felt. Or we would walk barefoot on grass and then gravel and then sand and notice how our bodies responded and how our emotional bodies responded and how our minds responded. I got to do this many, 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 many times over the three years of the master's part of my PhD. And I'm so grateful for it because it changed my life.
0: I'm sure there are so many people listening right now that are fired up for this podcast to come out. I know (laughs) I am because clearly there are probably some techniques that I can start to incorporate to reduce some of the anxiousness around all of my achieving. So I look forward to supporting you as you launch that podcast. And with that, Goal Achievers, keep celebrating your weekly wins, noting your lessons learned, and identifying your priorities for next week so, you can consistently pursue progress in the direction of your goals. Thank you for listening to this episode. If you are feeling inspired and want to join the Goal Achievers community, visit my website to sign up and get connected. We can also connect socially on Instagram. Follow me at Meet Kristen Burke. Links are in the show notes. Don't forget to rate, review, and share this show. Until next time, goal achievers, keep progressing towards your goals and celebrate those weekly wins.